Welcome to Crime Beyond Borders from the Journal of Illicit Economies and Development and the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. My name is John Collins and I'm Editor-in-Chief of the Journal. In this episode, I'm delighted to say that we're joined by the preeminent scholar of global drug markets, Professor Peter Reuter. Professor Reuter is a distinguished university professor in the School of Public Policy and Department of Criminology at the University of Maryland. He was also founding president of the International Society for the Study of Drug Policy and has published prolifically on topics of drugs, organized crime, money laundering, and numerous other topics. My interest was illegal markets, and by the early 80s, it was clear that drugs constituted the largest illegal market. I started at the Rand Corporation in 1981, and an opportunity came to study illegal drug markets, and that was just a sort of natural extension of my interests. And one, you know, I was interested in the markets, and that eventually led to an interest in drug policy more generally. If I, if I was to try to sum up the, the, the oscillations you might have witnessed, right, is that it strikes me that drug policy over the last, let's even say, half a century is in some ways a search for an easy answer, a silver bullet easy answer, right? There's, there's, there's one way to manage the issue. And we've kind of gone from the, 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 the archetype of the war on drugs approach of the, let's say, 1980s through a very, very different paradigm now, which also offers a kind of, well, there's one answer, or, or maybe there's two answers, which might be harm reduction and legalization. What, what do you think about that, or have, or have I completely mis, misframed it? No, I think that there's always a search for easy answers. Nuance, nuance is complicated, and public discussion avoids complications. I think harm, redu- look, harm reduction is unquestionably a big sort of intellectual uh, breakthrough. You know, it, it's not unique to drug policy, but it's a much more important element of drug policy discussions than of, for example, driving. I mean, sort of, so harm reduction, in a way, for economists, first became prominent in discussions about the effects of mandatory seatbelts. And there's, there's sort of classic studies by University of Chicago economists which showed that mandatory seatbelts and other ways of making cars safer led to more accidents but less damage because with seatbelts, people felt that their driving was safer, as indeed it was, they tended to speed more. They'd have more accidents, but the accidents would have less damage, you know, harmful consequences. And so, so the idea of harm reduction is you know, way before it enters drug policy, but it's become central to drug policy discussions. And I think it's, it, you know, it, it's undoubtedly helpful, but that it's helpful. It's not a solution. And... Um, while I think that it's good that the limitations and harms of tough drug enforcement are now part of the standard discourse and not simply sort of the fringe reformers' uh, discourse, I think that's still an incomplete understanding of drug policy. I mean, I... So let me sort of step back and sort of give an example of just how drastically, even in the hawkish US, the dialogue has changed. 
by referring to a report in the Trump administration. Now, you know, the, the, the Trump administration had no taste for harm reduction, but when Governor Chris Christie, former Governor Chris Christie, chaired a commission on drug policy, sort of spurred by the opioid crisis, and I think it was 2018 that the report came out, maybe 2019, I think 18. The report absolutely was dominated by public health issues and barely anything to say about tougher law enforcement. And given that Chris Christie himself was a former prosecutor, a very aggressive one, not any sense a reformer, I thought it was just remarkable that there would be so little attention to tougher enforcement as a way of dealing with the U.S. Uh, opioid crisis. I, I would take that as indicating just how much the war on drugs rhetoric has sort of moved from the center of, of, of discussion. There, there, there clearly are you know, fringe groups that press that, but, but you know, the mainstream is no longer expecting that tough enforcement will accomplish much. I, I want to be careful. I mean, the Trump administration certainly reinstated some elements of the war on drugs. I mean, Jeff Sessions as Attorney General reversed the previous Attorney Generals, Lynch and um, Holder, who had pushed prosecutors to seek so minimal charges rather than maximal charges. Sessions pushed for maximal charges against drug dealers. But I think the numbers show a decline in the number of prosecutions and uh, the numbers sentenced uh, for drug offences. And generally, the, the, number, the share of incarceration in the U.S., that results from drug offences has gone down substantially over the last 10 years at least. And, and of course, with cannabis legalisation, the, the numbers will go down still more, but it, it, it holds for other drugs as well. Yeah, and to, to say in harm reduction is, you know, somebody coming of age as an early career academic in the field, it was, there's a lot to admire about it as a paradigm and its achievements, right? It's one thing that did what it said it would, it did what it said it would do on the tin, right? It was, it, as a pub, public health measure, it was actually effective. When you, you look at so many other drug policy interventions, they just clearly haven't worked. I think we get to a point in the discussions with where you get to diminishing returns. It's like harm reduction is a very important tool, uh, tool in the case. And indeed, legalization seems to be an increasing one. But not, neither are sufficient, right? And how, how do you find that balance between a, a holistic drug policy um, and, and, and just kind of fixating on one element, just like the, the paleo drug warriors did on enforcement back, back 20 or 30 years ago? Perhaps this is a time for me to sort of say something about my critique of public health thinking on drug policy. I think the the hostility to anything connected to the criminal justice system has become problematic 
when there is a role for supply reduction. I agree that there has been a real problem with policing and drug enforcement that it has been used in particular against uh, vulnerable communities, the huge amount of injustice. But that isn't to deny that, that it is important to maintain some level of pressure and, and think strategically about that pressure against drug markets. And the public health approach now is to regard all that as harmful and without potential benefit. I mean, I will say that I'm involved in editing of a journal where we have received commentaries that are extremely critical of a an article which found a positive consequence from drug enforcement because that article failed to identify all the ways in which drug enforcement had created harms. You have to start with the sort of full bill of, of, of charges against drug enforcement before you can find anything positive, and it would be better if you didn't find anything positive, is sort of the, the, the attitude. Um, and I think that that creates problems. Uh, there is a legitimate role for, for drug enforcement. But let me put a controversial one on because I think we're, we're, we're coming from the same perspective of, um, you know, we're, we're both active in um, academic spheres in drug policy. And I think uh, I gave a lecture at the LSE a couple of weeks ago and the guy running the course, it's not a secret, Dr. Mike Shiner, who's at the LSE, um, he was saying, you know, a lot of what I was saying was um, um, contrarian or I was, you know, it was in some ways controversial. But, but in re realistically, it's that I think we are getting to a point where there's certain orthodoxies, which I think even for people who do come from a re reform perspective, and I certainly would see myself as coming from a reform perspective, but there's certain, should we say, revealed truths or orthodoxies of thought, which need to be challenged a little bit, right? And I think that's, you're highlighting one of them. If I, if I was to give another, and I think you, you would be you know familiar with this discussion around uh, colonialism, right? This idea that drug policy is innately colonialist. Um, well, as a historian of drug policy, that's a difficult statement to make and to justify, right? And um, if anything, prohibitions in the international regime on a historical reading were an anti-colonial endeavor. And that's the point that I've made in a number, you know, I've written a book on this recently, I've made the point in a number of events. You know, if you look at the states that were most vigorously pushing for repressive hardline drug policies after World War II, um, it, it was not, well, the US to, to a significant degree was, but, you know, you look at Singapore, you look at Malay, you look at you know, the post-colonial states, there's a reason why these countries were pushing very, very hardline prohibitionist policies is that they were associated, um, regulated drug markets were associated with colonization. So, so that's just to make a pedantic point. But I think it's, I, I consistently come across this argument, which is set, stated as truth, right? Drug policy equals colonization equals racism. It's like, well, yes, in very, in very significant ways, it often does, but not in a uniform sense. So what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I'll give you another um standard truth that is clearly very questionable, which is that prohibition always leads to stronger forms of drugs. And you look at cannabis legalization in the United States, and it just completely contradicts that. Cannabis potency was probably around 10% 
uh, in illegal markets. In legal markets, you know, putting aside vapes, which are, of course, much higher uh, potency, the potency in most legal markets is averages close to 20%. Um, yet it's still, I mean, this articles are still published in which it just is asserted that prohibition leads to more potent and dangerous forms of drugs. Right. The, the iron law of prohibition, it's called, right? Iron law, thank you. I could, I'd forgotten the phrase. Yes, the iron law of prohibition. Well, not so. <laughs> the, the one true test we've had of that <laughs> contradicted the iron law. And so maybe if we were to dive a little bit further into, you know, we, we now have a lot of experiments which have run for, in some cases, almost, you know, eight to nine years of, of legalized cannabis regimes. What do you think? Is it is it too soon still to draw lessons or do you think we're at a point where we can actually have some? Well, I mean, I am reluctant. I do think that these are almost generational changes. I mean, I, I've always thought that a central question is how families will deal with the upbringing of children in this new new regime. To what extent will parents think that amongst the many things they need to teach their children, it is how to treat legal cannabis, you know, just as sort of parental advice about drinking is an important part of, of formation of drinking behavior and family, I mean, sort of not just family lessons, but sort of how the family itself treats uh, treats drinking. I mean, I, I have a story from a long time ago that may be relevant here in making the argument. So this was, a, I, I was years ago, I, I had lunch with a Dutch uh, official, I think it was Ministry of Justice official, and he, he was a he sm- actually smoked marijuana at the at, at lunch, which somewhat surprised me. And he talked about a, an American friend of his, a close friend, whose son had come to Amsterdam and um, reveled in the access to to legal cannabis. And the the Dutch man said, "You know, I of course had told my children." the right way to use cannabis. I mean, we always had it as a, a supplement to the after-dinner brandy um, that, that we had. And it, I didn't wasn't particularly interested in the, the specific lesson, that, but this notion that sort of as a father, he had a responsibility to teach his child how to use the drug responsibly, which is sort of really, I think it was a, it was a vivid image for me. And Maybe I, I think too much of parental upbringing, but that's one reason to sort of hesitate to draw inferences from what we've observed so far. The other thing is that the prices keep on falling, and surely that's going to make a difference. I mean, cannabis prices could really collapse. I mean, the cost of producing cannabis is trivial, and uh, with efficient um, distribution, it could become a very, very cheap intoxicant. And so I think until we see how the prices equilibrate, whether they do continue to fall, we should be hesitant about the the effect. On the other hand, I mean, I do think we're learning that it's not having much of an effect on the extensive margin, that is on prevalence amongst youth, 
but that it probably is increasing the intensity of use. And there could be real harms associated with that. I mean, I don't know the literature well enough. I've not, I mean, as I said, my interest is illegal markets. I'm a lot less interested in cannabis than I used to be. I really only maintain interest in the interaction between the legal and the illegal markets. So I've not followed in detail the work on the extent of cannabis-related problems. I, I do know that the, the intensity of use has increased, but I don't know the extent to which that has generated more uh, cannabis use disorders. And, and what about then the impact on criminal markets? You know, again, to, to take a truism of drug policy, you legalize, you remove the criminality from the markets. Is that what we're seeing? Well, we're certainly seeing a, a sharp decline in illegal markets. Um, it takes it takes longer than I expected. I, I thought that in Canada, the illegal markets would have collapsed within a couple of years, but that didn't. Um, I remember that something like, I can't remember whether it's one third or one half of the market continued to be served by illegal providers up, you know, the two years after the the legalization, it's clear that the, the legal market is gradually displacing the illegal. And in states where it's legal, the illegal providers are now selling more interstate than intrastate. And, and I know you've done some work on this previously, but if we think further afield, right, the impact that, say, legalization of cannabis had on Mexican cartels early on, can we can we extrapolate that to other markets? Can, you know, the unlikely, highly unlikely scenario of a legalized cocaine market. But but could we make further extrapolations from it? Or do you think it's too early? Um, no, I really do think the markets are distinct. I don't think I don't think there's endless. I think that you know, legalizing the methamphetamine market, legalizing cocaine, probably a very similar. Uh, in terms of their consequences domestically, obviously different for for the source countries. I, I mean, cannabis has always been its own policy sphere, its own market. I mean, you know, violence around cannabis markets has been very modest throughout the the history of U.S. drug markets, whereas you know, cocaine markets have been quite violent. Um, I mean, there are a whole series of differences across markets that seem relevant for the legal extrapolating um, the consequences of legalization the cannabis market is a mass market the cocaine market is relatively concentrated um, I think those are important differences in terms of what are the likely consequences I remain entirely agnostic about whether society you know, the US would be better off, with a legal versus illegal cocaine market. I've no doubt that cocaine use would increase, cocaine dependence would increase. How one trades off the uh, increase in health-related problems against the decrease in crime. My line about this has always been, only a University of Chicago economist thinks that you can convert all this into some money value and work, make a cost-benefit calculation. Um, it's just, it, 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 it remains impossible to make confident, even rough projections of what the consequences of legalization of cocaine would be. 
and you know it's very difficult then to think about how you would compare the pre-legalization and post-legalization regimes and the consequences would be very different for different population groups. Um, I mean, as a middle-class parent, I would worry a lot more that my kid would get into trouble if I were an inner-city resident and could imagine that the neighborhood would no longer have uh, street markets in cocaine, I might have a very different view of it. Yeah, and, and you know, from a... There's, there's a pragmatic question and, you know, from somebody, a diplomatic perspective and as a diplomatic historian, it's just, it's very hard to envision any scenario where you get towards a, a, a regulated transnational flow of cocaine. And the idea that, um, oh, well, Colombia or, or Mexico could unilaterally make a decision which would matter for the US, it couldn't. It, it, even if they did legalize domestically, that doesn't matter. You can't, you know, this goes all the way back to the 1912 convention. You can't force a commodity on a country that doesn't want to import it, right? Um, so, so how could you envision the, the, the chain of events that would lead to, towards legalized cocaine markets internationally? I really struggle to envision it. And then also the sense... You look at populations in Colombia and Mexico, very conservative on this uh, as well, right? Right. No, no, I agree entirely. I, I think, unfortunately, for, for Mexico, its drug problem is basically a consequence of American decisions and American behavior, and there's not much it can do on its own to deal with that problem. And um, as you say, the convention... Uh, and and the populations are very conservative. I mean, I mean, it's so fascinating that Uruguay has legalized uh, cannabis, given that the population, I, I think, sixty percent were definitely opposed to it, and it's basically indulging a, a sort of charismatic um, and popular president who was determined to do it. But no, there's surprisingly little support for drug policy reform, as we usually use that term, in Latin America. And, and before we go back to the organized crime question, how do you, what do you think about Germany's legalization? Because you made the point at the beginning that once, you know, once one state starts, it, it, it draws other states. Do you think that'll happen in Europe? Oh, I, I mean, certainly. I mean, and the fact that it's Germany, I mean, no one thinks of Germany as irresponsible. I mean, if, this, if the Dutch do it, well, they're Dutch. But... I mean, Germany is a very responsible uh, and sober, I mean, drink too much beer, but I mean, it's basically a very sober society. If they do it, then I think it really changes the calculus in many European countries. And the truth is, if Germany does it, then a very large number of countries have access. I mean, people in many countries will have access, easy access to legal, legal marijuana. I mean, I don't know how many countries it neighbors on but it's it's a large number um, so I think it it transforms I have been surprised that the legalization of cannabis in the US has had so little resonance in Europe to date and it's interesting I mean the 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 only reason Germany is doing it is really in a way the peculiar nature of the coalition that came to power, and the fact that one of those parties had made a commitment to cannabis legalization. It's not as though this is a movement that is sweeping public opinion in, in Germany. It is the Greens, if I remember correctly, the Greens had said 
they were going to legalize cannabis if they came to power. And there they are. And I, I think it goes to that point. You know, Europe, to some degree, never had the U.S. drug war, maybe with the exception of Sweden, we could say. But markets here aren't that. It's not a, you know, it's not a top 20 issue for most people. Right, right. No, no, it's a, it is not such a salient issue. I, I agree. And actually, it makes me think of uh, on this side of the world, sort of. Um, you've written, you've written in the past about Afghanistan and whether the supply of opium from Afghanistan can be cut. Do you want to make any 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 prognostications on what the new regime may mean, or what whether history will rhyme or repeat itself? I was surprised that after taking power, the Taliban announced that it would prohibit opium production. In the, I mean, the first couple of weeks, they said it maybe only once, maybe twice, but clearly they've backed away from that. And I mean, it, 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 a country which is plunged into economic disaster, um, the notion that you would then cut off the largest single source of agricultural earnings is just, would almost, you know, it'd have to be suicidal. A suicidal regime to do that. So I can't see the circumstances in the near future under which there would be, that they would bring back the prohibition on opium growing. I don't know if five years from now things are stable, maybe they'll be able to indulge their preference for that. But I do think it's a long way off before that could happen. So if we maybe zoom out a bit then again and just back back to your work and your you know the evolution of your thinking on say organized crime how do you think organized criminal markets have changed over the last 3 4 decades So I mean the the the, the level of of violence in the producing countries is in a way stunning producing and traffic I should actually give more emphasis to trafficking the the Mexican homicide rates predominantly related to the drug trafficking are horrifying and the brutality of them. I mean, they're not just killings, they're 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 torture and killings, decapitation, you know. I, I mean I I won't go on, but but you know, it, the, the violence is extraordinary. And then one of the interesting phenomena is how it, you know, you get to the US border and the violence comes to an end. I mean, El Paso on one side and um, Juarez on the other side. And, you know, Juarez, you know, in one year, Juarez was the mo had more homicides per capita than any other city in the world. And, you know, there were two killings in, in El Paso in the same year. I mean, it is fascinating that these Mexican organizations which are so effectively violent in Mexico are so careful um, on the other side of the border. And just a reminder that these homicide rates are evidence of a failed state uh, in Mexico. Uh, and th this administration with a very different attitude is just as ineffective in controlling homicide as it's aggressive, corrupt um, predecessors were. Um, I'm, 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 I will admit I'm rambling in my answer to your question. I'm not sure I do have a, a, a concise answer to that, but I, I, I would say that the high level of violence in Mexico, Brazil, 
uh, Colombia and Central America around the drug trade is probably the most important and troubling aspect of, of the drug of drug markets globally. I mean, they're so so different from the drug problems in any other part of the world. I mean, drug-related violence in the U.S. is fairly moderate. I, I, as I say, I don't think I have a nice, concise answer to your perfectly good question. But, but I think it's, it, 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 it speaks on a truth, right? It, it would be very few people who would say the solution to drug markets in Asia is legalization, right? Because it's just the level of violence and the level of state. It's such a different set of markets and how they operate is so different than Latin America. It's only in Latin America where you see that extreme, okay, people say it around Afghanistan, et cetera, but it's, it's really Latin America where you see the extremity of violence that people go for the, well, we have to, we have to do something. We have to do something that's completely outside the box. But I, I think it goes back to the earlier point that imagine the economic shocks to the communities that are reliant on drug markets if you were to legalize or if you were to radically change policy in the morning. It, those would be the ones who would suffer significantly as well. Would, would that be right? I mean, those countries would suffer, but... In the context of a trillion-dollar economy, as Mexico has, drug markets are small, modest. I mean, you know, I, I, $10, 15000000000 billion GDP contribution from drug markets. You know, it's 1%. I mean, it's very unevenly distributed. A lot, it employs a lot of people. I mean, one, I mean it is surprising how many people are involved in drug trafficking in Mexico, given that it, they're not retailing, it is, and they're not basically involved in the growing, they're just involved in this, in this trafficking, but we're talking about probably hundreds of thousands of people involved. But you no, know, I mean, it's not, whereas for Afghanistan, the heroin trade is of macroeconomic significance. I don't think for any of the Latin American countries it would be anywhere near as large a share of GDP as that. No, and I, 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 I probably more mean towards the communities that are just completely outlier. You know, they, they're out, they sit outside the mainstream of, say, the Colombian economy. They live in very remote areas. If you were to cut off the coca trade, it's not clear what they would do. They'd probably just be forced to move to the cities. Well, yeah, it could lead to more more migration Coca farmers don't make a lot more than banana farmers in their their region. I mean, that's one of the the insights about from economics that drug uh, refiners you know pay what they need to keep land and labor in coca farming, and that's just sort of enough more than you can earn from the next best uh, legal crop. I don't think it's it's about immiserating communities in the Andes if the cocaine trade were to disappear. I, I mean, there'd be some, you know, some loss of income, but not, I think, dramatic. Okay. So, so maybe for the last point, uh, a place close to my heart, but also uh, my organization, GI, works a lot on multilateral level. You've you've worked closely on the with the UN, and you've you know you've worked a lot with UNODC and predecessor organizations over the years. What do you think is the future for multilateral uh, drugs and crime control? The, the conventions are 
not unimportant, but they're not the drivers of drug policy. I mean, if you take away the conventions, would would cut, would would national governments act very differently? And I think the answer is, in large part, no. I mean, the 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 countries like China and Russia, which are aggressive about uh, drug matters, are not aggressive. Would would continue to be aggressive even without um, effective uh, enforcement of treaties. And many African countries are reflect their societies as being quite conservative about these things. So I I think the treaties, you know, facilitate the prohibition, but they're not the principal drivers of prohibition as a choice or even as an enforced policy. I have very little sense that CND is important, seems to argue year after year about fairly marginal issues. You know, does ketamine get on the the list or not? Should cut be there or not? Um, So, I I mean, it may be that I'm not deeply enough involved in that sphere, but I don't think of them as, as central actors. I'm involved with UNODC uh, in sort of scientific advisory committee on the World Drug Report, and I think that the World Drug Report is a a useful document, um, but I don't otherwise really have much connection with UNODC as a as a policy agency. Yeah, I think the CND and others have been have been inflated into being these, you know, the, the, to use an expression that's often said, the war room of the war on drugs. When actually, if you, if you trace it back, it's, it's, it's like any multilateral mechanism. It's a place for states to come together and talk. It's not very good at enforcing its will on member states. It, it certainly seems to be undergoing a continued process of fragmentation now. Do you think that fragmentation can coexist? I, I, think, I think I know the answer based on what you've said, that, you know, it's not going to change member states' policies one way or the other. But as it fragments or, or policy, the policy train widens, do you think it can Continues to have a relevance. Yeah, I mean, it is. The, the can, I mean, cannabis is. It is fascinating. First of all, that that you know, the the the, the world's leading hawk uh, becomes the world's leading legalizer. I mean, to me, it's reinforced this sense that cannabis was always its own domain and needed to be treated separately from. Uh, you know, cocaine, heroin, methamphetamine, etc. Um, so I, th- I think that that in a way, it, this has just reinforced that sense that that's separate, and the core of the of the international system is around other drugs. Um, so no, I don't think the fragmentation is is uh, creating great tension. That's it for this episode of Crime Beyond Borders. I'd like to thank Professor Peter Reuter again for joining me today. You can find the link to our website, jayad.lse.ac.uk, in the summary to this show. On there, you can find links to various papers from corruption and illicit tobacco trades to cybercrime as an essential element in transnational counterfeiting schemes. Remember that it's all peer-reviewed and free to access. You can also find our previous episodes on urban peace, the environment, and the special episode on Brazil. We're also on Twitter, at Illicitacons, 
On LinkedIn, you can become a member of the Illicit Economies and Organized Crime Researchers and Policy Professionals Group, where hundreds of organized crime experts from around the world engage in discussions on the latest research in organized crime. We'll be back in a few weeks with another episode of Crime Beyond Borders from Jayad and the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. I'm John Collins. Thanks for listening.